the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. In order to save the faith, we must abandon it, or at least we must abandon certain tenets of it. That is an old apologetic strategy. It's been tried for several hundred years now by various professing Christians on the Protestant side of things. This kind of mentality has recently popped up through an essay by the esteemed Christian philosopher William Lane Craig. Craig's piece is entitled The Historical Adam, and it just ran for First Things online. I believe Craig's article on First Things is a foretaste of coming book on the historical Adam that is the culmination, as he has said elsewhere, of many years of thinking about this problem, certainly reading deeply and widely about it, and thinking biblically and philosophically and theologically about the historical Adam. William Lane Craig is esteemed in the Christian community, as I have just mentioned, because he has a reputation for deep thinking, even if you do not agree with him in different areas, as I do not. Uh, you will recognize that he has a serious intellect and he has made uh, certain contributions uh, to, the, to the church. But in this essay, The Historical Adam, I believe Craig goes off course. Ultimately, Craig's essay, The Historical Adam, tries to do two things. It tries, it seems, to affirm the historical Adam, but it seems to affirm the historical Adam in a way that altogether undercuts any affirmation of the historical Adam. Let me explain. In today's podcast, I'm going to take you through seven responses of mine to William Lane Craig's essay, The Historical Adam for First Things. First, in this essay, William Lane Craig seems to think our choices are either wooden chronological history in the Bible or, second, combined myth and history in different historical accounts in the Bible. Either wooden chronology or what he calls mytho-history. And he will say, uh, as he has in different sources, that he is merely walking in the stream of uh, a good deal of evangelical Old Testament scholarship today that would affirm mytho-history without necessarily using uh, that term. Craig simply says that he is bold enough uh, perhaps he is established in his career enough, certainly he is, to not care <laughs> what people say about him. He's a big boy, and uh, he has made a big argument in public, and it deserves a thoroughgoing theological and biblical evaluation, which is what I intend to give it here. Let me quote some uh, selections from Craig's first thing, first things piece. 
I'm going to quote several just so we stack it up and you know, as the listener, what he argues. I don't simply want to summarize him. I want to quote him and I want to quote him, not just a a quick snippet. I want to be fair. I want to give you a sense of what he says. So buckle up. If Genesis 1 through 11, Craig says, functions as mytho history, then these chapters need not be read literally. The accounts of the origin and fall of man are clearly metaphorical or figurative in nature featuring as they do an anthropomorphic deity incompatible with the transcendent God of the creation account. End quotation. So here it is. I already told you this was coming, but this is Craig's scheme or structure for Genesis 1 through 11. It is not straightforward literal history or literalistic history, as he says. He argues that Genesis 1 through 11 is what he calls mytho history. And this means, to be very clear, that Genesis 1 through 11 should not and cannot, in fact, be read literally. He is plain as day. And William Lane Craig is the one who has chosen to publish this, say it in public, and make his case. The accounts of the origin and fall of man are clearly metaphorical or figurative in nature. This could not be a starker case. Craig is not hiding what he believes here. He believes that in some sense, you can read Genesis 1 through 11 as perhaps literarily true. This is my own term, but you cannot read Genesis 1 through 11 as historically true. In an interview with Sean McDowell that he just did uh, just this week, Craig said that basically the scholarly consensus is that Genesis 1 through 11 just cannot be taken as Uh, historical text. So the historical part of Genesis, I'm paraphrasing for Craig, based on what he calls scholarly consensus, starts in Genesis 12. So this means that, yes, we have accounts of the origin and fall of humanity, but to repeat myself, they are clearly metaphorical or figurative in nature. And Craig, we should note this as well, is altogether against the idea of God walking in the garden. As you see in Genesis 3, following the eating of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Craig reads that as ridiculous, as impossible, because he pits an anthropomorphic deity against the transcendent God of the creation account. Let's mark this. I'm not going to do a deep dive on that particular discussion, but let's just mark this and let me say it to you if you're not deep in evangelical debates over theology proper. That is a very common move today. It is very common to argue that we cannot take the Bible seriously when it gives us any account of God as the personal God who is anthropomorphically involved with his creation. Someone like me is going to say, in response, of course God is not like us. There is the creator-creature distinction that always obtains when uh, we are reading about God. And yet, God also chooses not simply uh, to, to be transcendent, but God is of his own volition, of his own being, imminent. God chooses to draw near to his creation. God is the personal God. Uh, related discussion, uh, God does not have 
emotions like we have emotions, but God is a personal God who the scripture presents as wronged by sin, burning against it, vengeful against it. The scripture presents God, on the other hand, as loving his people, weeping over his people, even in different places. So great is his uh, joy in them and desire that they would know him and not sin against him. So don't buy this break between an anthropomorphic deity and a transcendent God. Handle it with care. Know that the biblical God is not a creaturely God, and yet also recognize that there is much energy being given today against different portraits of God as a real personal God, and the stakes are very high there. I'm not going to say more. I'll say more in future podcasts along those lines. Let's continue with Craig's uh, words. Other aspects of the narratives would be fantastic, he writes uh, further in the piece. Even to the Pentateuchal author himself have taken literally. Uh, note, by the way, that Craig here does not use uh, the name Moses to speak of the author of uh, Genesis 1 through 11, but Pentateuchal author. Let's continue with Craig. The idea of an arboretum containing trees bearing fruit that if eaten would confer immortality or yield sudden knowledge of good and evil, must have seemed fantastic to the author. We are not dealing, after all, Craig writes, with miraculous fruit, as if God would on the occasion of eating supernaturally bestow upon the eater immortality or knowledge of good and evil against his divine will. End quotation. This is a remarkable passage. It should chill your blood. William Lane Craig, as I have been at pains to say, is a widely respected apologist. Someone like me who does not follow his evidentialist method nonetheless recognizes that William Lane Craig has a gifted intellect and has contended for the faith in public against many figures and has landed some real blows uh, on the other side. So let that be said. But this apologetically, is a disaster. If you tell us which doctrines in Scripture are fantastic, in Craig's word, meaning beyond belief, you need to know that you are putting yourself on ground that is not merely shaky, but that is crumbling. You see, Christianity, dependent upon the Word of God, stands upon many miracles many miraculous events that transcend the natural reason of the fallen human mind. The faith is not subject to the sensibilities of the fallen human mind. I recognize that the Christian faith is sometimes presented that way, sometimes by speakers who are far more influential and widely known than little old me on this little old podcast. Let me recognize that. But I could care less. Please note that no doctrine of the Christian faith is subject to the approval of the fallen mind of sinful man. Sinful man is going to consider many things fantastic or ridiculous or beyond belief. You've got literally dozens of biblical teachings, biblical events, and biblical doctrines that will qualify for ridiculous in the mind of sinners, the resurrection, blood atonement, eternal judgment, creation ex nihilo, need I go on, Jesus changing water to wine. What miracles pass the 
fantastic test and what miracles don't. William Lane Craig has set himself up in this piece, and I assume perhaps in his book, as the arbiter of what is fantastic in the biblical narrative. I know he's not alone. I know there are numerous professing evangelical Old Testament scholars who do much the same and get away with it. But note that Craig is being bold here. I commend him at least for putting his views out in the open and public and not disguising them. But I do not in any way commend the actual substance of the idea. The doctrines of Scripture are not subject to our commendation and approval. The natural man does not esteem or receive the things of God. They are foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. See 1 Corinthians 1 as well. The idea that the Christian faith we present to people is a Christian faith that should pass their smell test is an idea that has no apologetic weight at all. It shouldn't. This is not what we are in the business of doing. We are not trying to take away fantastic, Craig's word, doctrines, events, persons, moments of the biblical narrative in order to preserve the Christian narrative. This is not a sound apologetic strategy. Instead, as I'll say further below, we should do something that is far more radical than what Craig is proposing. We should believe the scripture. We should trust it. We should read it wisely and soundly. We should know that much of it is literal. Much of it is to be taken at face value, that is. Some of it is symbolic. Yes, there are different genres of scripture that matter. And yet we take the Bible as truthful. I digress. I'll come back to that later. Let's read Craig some more, shall we? We can see how naive it is, Craig argues, to argue that merely because some New Testament author refers to a literary figure, whether found in the Old Testament or outside it, that figure is asserted to be a historical person. In every case, Craig writes, we must pay close attention to the context in order to determine whether the New Testament is asserting a figure's historicity or referring to the figure illustratively. End quotation. This is speech or writing that sounds good, but actually is not. Of course, we pay close attention to the context of every passage we're dealing with. And yet, when the New Testament deals with a person, whether a person of the Old Testament or a person of the New Testament era, we must always assume historicity of the person in question. There is no person who is referred to by New Testament authors in any positive sense who is only illustrative, meaning something like a character in a story that is not ultimately true. If a person is said to be true, that person truly lived. There is no disjunction here. There is no space between New Testament writing about a historical person and the actual historicity of that person. Let's continue on. Craig goes even further still and has words, shocking words for us about Christ. Christ's understanding of Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 and 2 in particular. Jesus, he says, cites Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them, and weds this statement with Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Craig says, 
This forms the basis for Jesus' teaching on divorce. Jesus is interpreting the story of Adam and Eve to discern its implications for marriage and divorce, not asserting its historicity. Similarly, many of Paul's references to Adam may be understood not to go beyond the literary Adam. Okay, there's at least two things to say here, end quotation. First, Craig is arguing that Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19. That's the passage in question here. He is uh, teaching that marriage and divorce is to be handled in a certain way, according to Craig. But Craig's point is that in citing Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus is, again, I quote, not asserting its historicity. That is the historicity of these chapters, the story of Adam and Eve. This is disastrous. It is dead wrong. Jesus is absolutely asserting historicity. That's why he's citing Jesus 1 and 2. That's why he says male and female, he created them. Because Jesus, of all people, believes the Bible, the scriptures he had, of course, which would be the Old Testament in, in significant form. And so Jesus is reading his Bible and he is believing Moses. He is believing the Pentateuch. He is believing, by extension, Adam and Eve's historicity. He is absolutely making an argument that is dependent on historicity. More on that to come. A second point we need to make about this passage that I just read is that Craig argues that Paul is doing something similar to what he said Jesus was doing. Paul references Adam in Craig's argument, but he is not meaning, Paul is not meaning the historical Adam. He is meaning the literary Adam. Okay, what does this mean? This means that there is a character in a story, effectively a fictional story, and that is the literary Adam, though there are some figments in Paul's writing of the actual historical Adam. So what Craig has done is he has created a dichotomous understanding of Adam, where there is a historical Adam, we're touching that here, momentarily. And there is a literary Adam. And the literary Adam is not the same thing as the historical Adam. It is, again, akin to a character in one of your favorite stories. Might as well be Gandalf. Let's continue and quote one final passage from Craig. By the way, I interacted with these passages and a whole bunch more on my new Substack. If you uh, search Owen Strand's Substack you will get the Substack. Please subscribe to it. Um, I know I'm late on the uh, Substack wave, but I am writing it boldly nonetheless. You can also find it on my Twitter if you want that link. My Twitter is at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. Okay, final passage from Craig. Here we go. It follows that Adam and his sin are asserted by Paul to be historical. What Paul asserts of the historical Adam does not, however, go beyond what we have already affirmed on the basis of our genre analysis of the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11, namely that there was a progenitor of the entire human race through whose disobedience moral evil entered the world. End quotation. What this means is that in this place, William Lane Craig says that he affirms Adam and his sin, 
as historical. So that gets our attention, frankly. That matters to us. We take that seriously. We take that in good faith in reading Craig's First Things piece, The Historical Adam. But we unfortunately cannot stop there. You cannot simply say, see, he said it. And that settles the the argument. William Lane Craig affirms the historical Adam. Frankly, this is a tremendously confusing article. So let that be said. And I'm not the one who wrote it, so I will take no blame for that confusion. But the problem with even trying to affirm Craig's seeming affirmation of the historical Adam is that he follows that seeming affirmation by saying, you cannot go beyond Craig's earlier genre analysis of Genesis 1 through 11. What this means, this is all quite complicated, but this means that you cannot understand Genesis 1 through 11 as anything but mytho-history. So even as Craig has affirmed a historical Adam, at least seemingly, when you look back to his understanding of Genesis 1 through 11, you remember that he has said the creation and fall accounts are metaphorical or figurative. He does not define those terms in his first things essay, but they matter greatly. Remember that he juxtaposed them against a literal understanding of history. At the end of the day, it seems to be the case that William Lane Craig thinks that there was a man uh, that Paul refers to, for example, as Adam, but you cannot neatly associate in a one-to-one way the Adam that Paul refers to in Romans 4 and 5, for example, with the Adam that Moses, (laughs) there's my uh, uh, beliefs coming out, that Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 1 through 3 introduces us to. Let me say that again for purposes of clarity. In William Lane Craig's mind, you cannot, I, you cannot associate the historical Adam that the Apostle Paul writes about in certain places, believing, Paul does, in a genuinely historical Adam with the Adam of Genesis 1 through 3. The Adam of Genesis 1 through 3 is not the same man for William Lane Craig. There was, according to Craig, a first man, a first man and a woman who were ensouled among the hominins. This is the argument that he references in the historical Adam piece. But that hominin who was ensouled and chosen to be the first man and woman is not to be neatly identified as the Adam that Paul in a few places speaks of, those places where Paul is not speaking of a literary Adam, but of a historical Adam. As I have said, this is a tortured formulation. So where does it ultimately lead us, friends? It leads us to a second response to this piece on my part. Ultimately, Craig's use of mytho-history destroys the historical Adam. It may be the case that in William Lane Craig's mind, he has affirmed the historical Adam. Certainly there will be fans of his, cheerleaders of his, followers of his who will say, no, no, look at the sentences. He affirms the historical Adam. Well, it is true that he has sentences to that effect But the very structure that Craig has created of his own volition, I didn't ask him to create this. He created it himself. 
he put it into the public he put it into the public arena he has debuted this idea on his part the structure he has created through his quote unquote genre analysis means that you cannot affirm the atom of genesis 1 through 3 as straightforwardly historical the creation account and the fall account is metaphorical or figurative what you have here is a tremendous mess and what you have here is a structure that makes hash of the affirmation of the historical Adam. In other words, William Lane Craig has set up a structure that denies the historical Adam. If you read him consistently, he cannot affirm it. His affirmation is undercut by his genre analysis. It is because he does not believe Genesis 1 through 11 is history, history as actual chronological truth that he cannot ground the historical Adam. It's fascinating to me that William Lane Craig uses the term mytho-history to describe his understanding of Genesis 1 through 11, an account that has truth in it, Genesis 1 through 11, but is literarily not a chronological account, a literal account. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Do we remember this? Have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. Let me repeat that. Have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. This is explosive for considering the claims of this essay. Because Craig argues that actually New Testament authors do have a good deal to do with silly and godless myths. They work them into their writings. They depend upon them. In his interview with Sean McDowell, for example, Craig argued that the characters of Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses, according to scripture, are fantastic fictional characters. Craig makes this claim in his interview with McDowell because in extra-biblical Jewish literature, there are many fantastic stories that genuinely do sound wild and not true that uh, crop up around Janus and Jambres. This is a major problem, though. It's a technical one that I have not seen anyone comment on. I didn't see any comments on the YouTube video about this. And it's, it makes sense because it's a hard one to spot, frankly. But if, you, if your ears are perked along this count, two things can be true that Craig uh, does not understand, it seems. It can be true that Janice and Jambres were real historical persons. It can also be true, and so the Bible is right to speak of them as historical persons. It can also be true that extra-biblical literature presents them in an unrealistic way. Extra-biblical literature does not norm biblical literature. Extra-biblical sources and so-called authorities do not norm biblical authority. But Craig seems to have set up a structure where that is the case. And that is tremendously problematic for him. Craig's use of mytho-history shows us that he is already flying in the face of the counsel of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, don't have myth anywhere in your theology. Timothy, have nothing to do with it. Run from myths. Paul isn't meaning never read Greek mythology to your kids or something like that. He means in your doctrine. Don't wed historicity, truth, with myths. People all around Paul and Timothy were doing this in the Greco-Roman world. 
And that was a major problem. If you do that, by extension, in Paul's argument, you will end up with a vision of biblical history that is totally ahistorical, where history is mythical, just like uh, Greco-Roman tales are mythical, just like Aesop's fables are mythical. And that is not biblical history. And this leads us to my third response. Theology depends on facticity. The faith, that is, depends on the truth. You cannot have the Christian faith without historical accuracy. Now, let me say a word here of awareness of our moment. There are different scholars and theologians, professing Christians, pastors, who say you can. They say you can have the Christian faith without biblical history, without reading, for example, Genesis 1 through 11 as literal history. That word literal, by the way, is one of the most misused words by the other side. It is one of the most confused words in all of Christian exegesis and doctrinal discussion. When I am talking about a literal literal reading, excuse me, of Genesis 1 through 11, I am not meaning a wooden chronological historical accounting. We all recognize that Genesis 1 through 11, like the four gospels, is shaped history. In other words, it is not in every case hour by hour, point by point history. There is theological shaping that has constructed those historical accounts. We can affirm that and not do any violence to those historical accounts. We must affirm it, in fact. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, for example, does not flow hour by hour neatly. Uh, the, The creation of the man occurs in Genesis 1 on day 6, and then Genesis 2 gives us a window into the sixth day of creation because we have God resting at the end of Genesis 1 where he is creating the man once more in Genesis 2. So we can recognize doing no violence to the truthfulness of biblical history that historical accounts, historical narratives do have different evidence of shaped history, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Our standard of history, I will repeat myself is then, is not wooden chronology of a kind of time-stamped nature. Having noted that, theology depends on facticity. And so Genesis 1 through 11 is not myth. It is not mostly myth. It is not partly myth. It is not a little bit of myth. Genesis 1 through 11 is historical truth. It is giving us the account of creation, the account of the fall, and that which goes wrong after the fall, God uh, nonetheless persevering the seed of the woman following that historical disaster. So in Genesis 1 through 3 in particular, please hear me as clear as a bell ringing at midday, we are dealing with a real historical Adam. We are dealing with a real historical creation. We are dealing with a real historical fall. We are not dealing with silly, godless myths. 
And because the events of Genesis 1 through 3 are true, are grounded in actual space and time in history, we can go to those events and we can build our doctrine and our whole life on them. We can stake eternity on the historical accounts of Genesis 1 through 11 and of the Bible more broadly. The Bible is not only history, as I have said, but the Bible is substantially history. The history we have in the Bible is shaped history, but it is nonetheless truthful history. And it is history that is neither bare fact on the one hand that has no meaning, nor mythology on the other that has nonetheless rich symbolism. It is truthful history that grounds doctrine. The faith depends on the truth. If, by the way, you are wondering if there are any seminaries left out there that still teach this view, there are some, there are increasingly fewer and fewer. The seminary at which I teach is called Grace Bible Theological Seminary. It is in Conway, Arkansas. You may never have heard of it. You may think to yourself, I don't know much about that school, or perhaps you don't have grounding in that area, this region, something like this. This is an independent seminary in the Reformed Baptist tradition. If you're just getting wind of it here on this very podcast, here you go. Congratulations. But know this about this small yet growing school. We will teach you or we will teach any students you send us that Genesis 1 through 3 gives us a real historical Adam and a real historical fall. We will teach any who come here, any you send us as a pastor, that this is not only something we do believe, this is something we must believe. If you do not have the first Adam through whom death comes, you cannot have a second Adam through whom salvation comes. If you do not have a real historical fall, you cannot have a real historical atonement and resurrection. If you do not have the imputation, the reckoning of Adam's sin to all humanity, you cannot have the imputation, the reckoning of Christ's righteousness to the elect. These things are not options in a theological buffet from which we select. These things hang together. These connections between the first Adam and the second Adam are inextricably bound. If you alter one, you alter the other. If you lose one, you lose the other. If one is myth, then the other is myth. There's no way to protect one and discard the other and keep Christianity. And this leads to my fourth response. What is so strange about Craig's essay and this kind of attempt is that it voices a very clear mentality. The mentality here, fourth response, is this. To save the faith, we must abandon the faith. To save Christianity, that is, we must abandon elements of Christianity that don't pass the reason test of the natural man. Uh, this is very similar to a related apologetic strategy. It's not quite the same thing, but it's very close. To save the Christian faith, in order to keep having a Christian faith to, to preach and promote, we've got to take out the parts that the natural man doesn't like. William Lane Craig is not so much dealing with that. He's not dealing with that which the natural man despises. He's dealing with that with which the natural man finds ridiculous. 
That seems to be his approach in this essay, The Historical Adam. But the two apologetic strategies are in truth, one, to save the faith for various reasons, abandon problematic elements of the faith. This this has all been done before. This program has been run. This code has already been written. Liberal Protestants made exactly this move. This was not part of their apologetic and missional strategy. This was their strategy. They reacted to various figures of the Enlightenment. And liberal Protestants, stemming from Europe, then taking root in America throughout the 19th and 20th centuries in particular, believed that they would actually save the Christian faith by distancing it from historicity and facticity. The two mean the same thing. We have, for example, the German philosopher telling us that history cannot bear what Christians say it does in 1777. That is a long time ago. That is 244 years ago. Lessing, the German philosopher, wrote this. Accidental truths of history can never become the proof of necessary truths of reason. That is one of the most important sentences in intellectual history. Accidental truths of history can never become the proof of necessary truths of reason. What Lessing was saying, was teaching, is exactly what we have been covering here. There can be a historical account, but a historical account cannot bear uh, the freight by which to construct a reasonable worldview. This is the same problem, in other words. It's not exactly the same angle from which Craig is approaching the matter, but it is the same problem that Craig is, is dealing with. The problem of historicity. This would bloom and blossom over the centuries following Lessing and other voices such that, as I say, the liberal Protestant movement abandoned the historicity of biblical events and in particular biblical miracles. Such that, in the end, if you follow liberal Protestant theology, there will continue to be various affirmations of Christian doctrine, but those Christian doctrines will not be based in history. And part of why this strategy was executed is because the liberals lost their confidence in history. They lost their confidence more broadly in the plain narratives of Scripture. They subjected the events and accounts of Scripture to natural reason. And they found the accounts of Scripture on that basis lacking. They came to see that it makes no sense to the natural mind to have creation ex nihilo, to have an axe head float on the water, to have the Son of God make blood atonement for sin, to have Jesus raising the dead, to have Jesus himself resurrected from the dead, to have the, the sinners and all who have uh, transgressed against God raised on the last day and judged. These and other doctrines, liberal Protestants read about in the scripture, in some sense said were true, at least some of them did for some of the time, but not true in an actual historical occurring in space and time sense, occurring in a spiritual sense. 
that is one of the major moves of the liberal Protestant exegetical and theological project to save the faith, abandon the faith. And that is, I need not tell you, a strategy of nihilism. It will destroy Christianity. Christianity will not be saved. Christianity will be lost. Fifth response related to this one. Science in the academy for this apologetic strategy set the prerogatives and we bend scripture to them. Craig, in this essay, Four First Things, frequently quotes and cites scholarly voices, scholarly authorities. He cites scholarly consensus in his interview with McDowell, for example, to tell us, as I have already said, that Genesis 1 through 11 straightforwardly is not to be interpreted as historical truth. It is as if the scholarly guild sets all our priorities and can hand down from on high what in the Bible is true and what is not. And if you hear scorn in my voice, you are accurate. You are hearing me rightly because this is a complete reversal of the way this relationship should go. It is not that you should never read scholarly sources, never give them a hearing, never test what scripture presents, uh, not read widely when you're considering uh, the exegesis of a given passage. We teach our students at GBTS to do all such things, to do them carefully, to do them circumspectly, but we teach students to take the life of the mind in the conversation over doctrine and exegesis with deadly seriousness. We don't take ourselves too seriously, we hope, uh, here or anywhere there's a Christian, but we take God with the utmost seriousness. But we must note this, science in the academy do not set the prerogatives of the Christian faith. You don't bend Christianity to meet the scientific consensus. It appears from what friends have told me that William Lane Craig has fallen in with a set of scientific-oriented friends, uh, and he is being very much influenced by them. I don't know that for myself personally, but it it would not shock me if that were the case. We cannot take our cues as Christians from the secular academy, from any secular or extra biblical source, and then norm the Christian faith to those standards. The Christian faith is the normative faith. It is the norm, as the reformers argued, that norms every other norm. So we don't go to highly intelligent skeptics, professors, and thinkers and say, what do you think about the Christian faith? What seems reasonable about the Christian faith? As I present scriptural doctrine to you, let me know, and then I will mold my faith to what you think is reasonable. This is all meaning that for Craig's sixth, reason is the test for the sensibleness of our doctrine. I have already alluded to this, but I need to put it before you in principial form. For Craig, at least operating in this essay, reason is the test for the sensibleness of our doctrine. And I want you to hear from me, at the very least, if you hear it from no one else, that reason is not the test for our doctrine, whether it is sensible, whether it is believable. It is the word of God that is the test for our doctrine. Let me put it as clearly and simply as I can. Does the word teach it? Does the word teach it as true? If it does, believe it. Follow it. Think it out. Connect the threads in scripture. 
You're never going to exhaust the meaning and power and beauty of Scripture. You're never going to master God in this sense. And yet, remember that if the Bible teaches it, if the Bible presents it as real, as accurate, as historical, then God is calling you to believe that passage in that miracle, in that doctrine. The test for doctrine is not man's sensibility, man's predilections. What does man think? What is man like? The test for doctrine is what the word of God flatly and plainly teaches. Some doctrines are easier to comprehend than others. But make no mistake, there is no doctrine that a true Christian receives because the natural man likes it. In fact, as I have said, there are going to be many Christian doctrines, teachings, passages, verses that the natural man doesn't like, that philosophers tell us can't line up together, and we don't take our cues from the guild. We don't take our cues from any traditional group. We don't take our cues from from what scholars would say. We give different voices a hearing, yes, We test arguments without fear. But ultimately, if the scripture teaches it, we believe it. And the scripture interprets itself. The scripture is our authority. There is no source that accredits scripture. There is no source that, uh, that, that tells us, oh, yes, the scripture is true. And so we can trust it. And we look to that source because it has validated and certified the scripture. I know this is hard, by the way. When you engage skeptics and intellectuals a good deal, as Craig does, because they will mock you for being a pietist, for believing in the Bible. That's probably part of what is in play here, apologetically, with William Lane Craig. He has stepped into the arena uh, in past days over, over a long haul, over many years. He has debated and engaged many skeptics and philosophers and thinkers, brilliant people. And when you engage those people, it can grow tiresome to hear that you are a fideist, a pietist, a biblicist, uh, of a kind of uh, simple, trusting, vacation Bible school teacher form. That can become a bad thing for you because you're getting mocked and scorned for it. But friends, Trust the VBS teacher as they trust the word of God. Trust them over the most brilliant philosopher there is. Trust the church that trained you in the faith, not ultimately I mean, but trust what it is teaching you as it stands upon the word of God over a guild of a whole bunch of really smart whippersnappers with theology PhDs who have new ideas from extra biblical sources and extra biblical creeds that would norm the Christian faith and change your doctrine of God. Choose wisely on this count, friends. All this means, seventh and finally, that Craig's apologetic seems to emphasize that we should base our faith in constructed scenarios rather than biblical accounts. What do I mean? Well, as I already mentioned, Craig tells us that Adam and Eve were ensouled hominids. This is not a new argument. This is one that uh, various figures in the last 40 or 50 years have made. Tim Keller may believe a form of this. Um, Derek Kidner 
uh, proposed a form of this. And so it's not a new view. William Lane Craig seems to have accepted it. It's gotten significant traction among those who would affiliate with Biologos and uh, other proponents of theistic evolution of that kind. So this isn't new. But what is new, uh, relatively speaking, is this idea, this apologetic. You should base your faith in this evolutionary framework that has no grounding in history. No one has accounted for it. There's no record of it. Scientists tell you to believe it, but that's where it comes from. It comes from them. Most of them have absolutely no belief in the biblical God, by the way, but they are accredited by increasingly many professing Christians as sound. And mark this, their constructed scenario of ensouled hominins is sounder and more trustworthy than biblical accounts. I was shocked when I watched this video that I have referenced several times uh, where McDowell, Sean McDowell, interviews William Lane Craig. And William Lane Craig, as I quoted uh, earlier in the podcast, mocks the idea that there is a talking snake and there is God walking in the garden with his people and there is actual fruit that Adam and Eve are not supposed to eat upon penalty of death. He almost sneers and laughs at the biblical account. But what does he feel free to put forth in his essay? Constructed scenarios from evolutionary theorists. Friends, this is the exchange that is made in this kind of apologetic strategy. It is not the great exchange that Luther talked about. It is the terrible exchange. It is exchanging your trust in the biblical account for trust in extra biblical sources of varying kinds. And that is not a sound movement. That is not a faith building movement. That is not a good apologetic offer. That is a faith-destroying movement. It will ultimately put your confidence and any you're trying to influence in the word of men rather than the word of God. But 1 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us not to put our hope and our trust in the word of men, but to put our hope and our trust only in the word of God. It gives me no joy to engage with William Lane Craig in the way I have in this little podcast. There's much, much more to say, much that I haven't covered, much that I've only touched on provisionally and imperfectly. But I pray that if we will engage William Lane Craig's essay well, not to burn it down, not to write him off or something like this, I have done no such thing. In fact, I've spoken of him, I hope, quite respectfully, because I do, in fact, respect him for his past contributions. Uh, some years ago, I believe he was profiled, for example, by the New York Times, and I, I put it on my social media and on some of the writing I do because I was encouraged by it. I was encouraged by his example. Even though I wouldn't line up where he lines up on different matters, I was thankful to see an example of a bold, uh, learned Christian uh, putting his faith to practice in the public square. And, and frankly, to this minute, th that is how I have read uh, Craig, and uh, that is how I have approached Craig. But I want to point out to you that what he has done, in conclusion, in this essay, The Historical Adam, is not going to save the Christian faith. It is not going to successfully win many to the true Christian faith. It is a strategy of saving the faith by abandoning the faith. That is abandoning certain 
unrespectable, unreasonable doctrines of the faith, namely the historical Adam and the real historical fall of that historical Adam. And I am here to tell you that is no sound strategy. Here is an alternate strategy. Here is the biblical strategy. Promote the faith. We're not the ones who will save it. We don't start from that standing point. Promote the faith by not abandoning the faith. Stand upon the word of God. Preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Ask God, pray to God to give faith and give trust in the word of God and the word of God alone. And watch as God's spirit comes and works far more powerfully than any well-crafted, well-researched, well-thought-out human argument. We are not promoting godless and silly myths as Christians. We are promoting the Word of God, all of it, all historical truth found in it, as that which we should base our own historical existence and our eternal predicament upon. We base eternity in the truths of history. A real Adam and a real second Adam, crucified and resurrected for us. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.